to White Oh yeah, are you ready to truck it? I'm Dooner here with... Michael Vincent, the dude. I'm ready, man. Beautiful afternoon here in uh, Freight Alley. Uh, it's a nice time. You know, it it comes, as we come to a close here at Global Supply Chain Week, the eighth business day of this event and our last What the Truck live from it. It's been a great time learning from all these different corners and sectors of the industry. Folks out there, if you've never seen our show before, What the Truck is a podcast that we do. Three times a week, right? That's right. right. Yeah, Mondays, once, Wednesdays, yeah. Fridays, yeah. noon Eastern time, live, Freightwaves LinkedIn, Freightwaves Facebook, then on-demand podcast players everywhere. If you won those AirPods Pros, it's <laughs> going to sound wonderful. Subscribe on, uh, subscribe over on Apple iTunes over there. Stay right within yeah. the ecosystem. But, better. you know, this is a global, global supply chain week. We've been treated to some really amazing keynotes, and today's was without exception. What was your takeaway from that one? Well, we talked about it briefly earlier, but that that one was really interesting to me. And the bold call uh, that that Craig asked uh, uh, Pomeroy, Mr. Pomeroy, to, yeah. to, to uh, forget his first James Pomeroy, right? Um, a bold call prediction was uh, half of retail uh, will be online by 2030, which is pretty bold. Wow! But it's going in that and it's going in that perfect direction. But it was really some of the the talk about. Uh, the after effects of the pandemic that we don't think about sure. um, and, and why those causes actually are going to happen. Uh, and, and the change from, you know, hard goods to services economy and yeah. and housing and de-urbanization yes. and all of those kind of yeah. things, which is which is interesting because you see it in some places like San Francisco, but then you see an uptick in, in, in Miami because, yeah. you know, they also touched on this and it was population and, you know, People not being able to uh, to date and and copulate and have kids and all of those kind of things. But one of my one of the reasons I th- don't think cities are going to die or ever going to die is it's just, I've lived in cities. It's way cooler. If I was single, I would not want to live in a suburb because you know if I'm living in a suburb, I'm, I'm going to have a harder time making those kids because it's going to be harder to meet you know a lady maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that there there is that. But I mean, and James Pomeroy touched on that. Craig asked him about that. And he said, yeah. you know, there might be some shifting a little bit there. And he just said, you know, the city is more for for leisure. Sure. And he talked about uh, what is it, Canary Wharf? I think it is, is what it is. Where he's talking about the financial district there in in London, where he where he's at. Did you know that um, two thirds of people though, two thirds of people who bought a home in 2020, did so and made an offer without ever le- even looking for a house. And I've been out wow. here in the market in Chattanooga looking, and I've seen realtors walk around like FaceTiming and doing oh, like house yeah. hunters via FaceTime with people. It's it's a crazy thing to see. But one other fact that was coming up here was that more people than ever are buying homes right now. But over the next two decades, it's, it's kind of creating a, a big divide between the haves and the have-nots. And home ownership, even though it's increased and it's harder to get inventory than ever, is going to reduce from 64.7% to 62.1% as fewer and fewer millennials and Gen Z start buying homes. So we're way off base from where uh, so home ownership for millennials now is 64% versus 72% for boomers when they were at the same age. So yeah. big change going on there. We're going to get into the news, but before we do, let's give away one more prize. You guys want it? I know you do. I know you do. This time, it's going to be an Apple Watch. And the Apple Watch is going to go to Next Trucking's John Papa Giorgio. Lucky John Papa Giorgio. Keeping time, staying healthy, getting those (laughs) alerts on that Apple Watch. Congratulations to you, sir. All right, let's hit the headlines. Let's hit the headlines. Yeah. All right. There we go. Two-second delay on the bumpers. <laughs> Got to make sure they don't say anything naughty. All right, at least here. Here's This is actually a terrible story. This is a terrible, terrible story. At least 15 people dead in a California 
crash involving a truck. And this is a Noe Mahoney reported on this one. And California Highway Patrol, um, they're saying now they're stating 15 people. It was 13 before. They're saying 15 yeah. people had died in this accident. And you can see a picture of it there, right there, involving an SUV and a tractor trailer in Holtville, California. The crash was between a Ford Expedition carrying, get this, 28 people. 28 people in a Ford Expedition. Big SUV, but not that big. And it crashed into a double tractor trailer around 6.15 a.m. on Highway 115, uh, Norris Road, northwest of Holtville. Yeah, not, not a good situation. Twelve of the occupants of the Ford Expedition were pronounced dead at the scene of the accident, according to Watson. The passengers of the SUV ranged from age 16 to 55. And again, 28 of them. One other person from the SUV was transported to the hospital where they succumbed to their injuries. And, and obviously another one, because that would have been 14. So now there, there's 15 that are there. But Watson said the tractor-trailer driver sustained moderate injuries and was transported to the uh, regional medical center where he was uh, being treated. But yeah, just a bad situation. There. Yeah, and that's same gentleman, Omar Watson from CHP Border Division Chief, he said this was not a Border Patrol pursuit. This is not associated with other agencies. We're not sure exactly what caused the collision, but there were no law enforcement agencies involved with the incident. Ford Expedition holds six people. I think they're mentioning this because you can sort of infer from the story this might have been migrant workers or a migrant population going to and from fields. And just awful, awful criminal conditions to put people. 28 people in one SUV. Yeah, they're, and they're obviously not meant to be inside that vehicle, right? And no. apparently it did come to a stop at a stop sign, but then rolled into the intersection, was T-boned, basically. It's hard to see your rearview mirrors when there's 27 other heads behind you. Yeah, a little right. bit tough. A little bit tough. little survey not, not came out thing. on FreightWaves.com. Sustainable trucking faces regulation and cost barriers. That's right. Alyssa Sporier reports that sustainable transportation logistics of freight is a growing concern for investors, customers, and freight companies worldwide. We've heard some of those conversations right on this very show. What the Truck? Day release Wednesday shows that truck drivers, dispatchers for fleets, and owner-operators have mixed feelings about different aspects of sustainable trucking. A February survey conducted by Convoy said that 75% of respondents believe fuel economy is an important factor to consider when buying a truck. It should be a very important factor. That number jumped to 94% for respondents who said they are considering purchasing a truck within the next year. Got more options, right? Yeah, more options, and it gets more important the closer you are to doing it. So the 474 small and mid-sized truck companies participated in the Convoy's survey. While there's a lot of news about electric truck technology manufacturers and orders, this survey's participants expressed a few major barriers to purchasing an electric truck. They are too expensive, was 158%. Uh, said 37% said distance limits, uh, distant limits were the distances it drives, the limits there were an issue, and 34% responded to uh, the charging infrastructure. Yeah, yet only so slightly over one fifth of respondents said that they felt pressure from government regulations. We know a lot of those are coming in place in 2035, yeah. but fleets right at this moment in time, they probably are not considering a you know 14 year gap between now and then that big one. But 40 percent said that stricter environmental laws and regulations aren't worth the monetary cost, at least not yet. And 45 percent of these laws uh, and regulations, they said the laws and regulations hurt the economy. However, many experts also state and people in the industry admit that without these regulations, we're going to be very slow to move forward. And you can see it right there in those responses. So things to consider and be mindful of.
Traffic jam in the Port of Houston. Headline number three here is a traffic jam in the Port of Houston. So John Gallagher reports a Texas law that has largely pitted the energy and container trades against each other. The Port of Houston has sparked interest from the FMC. That's the Federal Maritime Commission. The law in question is SB 2223. It went in force in September of 2019 and it banned access for any vessel larger than 1,100 feet to the HSC absent uh, approval from the newly authorized authorized board of pilot commissions. The law was in response to recent shutdowns of two-way traffic in the channel to allow newer, larger container ships, those new uh, post-Panamax vessels that are coming out. Yeah, it is. And the Federal Maritime Commissioner uh, uh, Carl Benzel um, and, and Luis uh, Solo point out that while the recent federal authorization of the $855 million project to widen the HSC uh, will help restore two-way traffic, the reality is that the project of such magnitude with environmental approval, engineering, and construction will be multi-year endeavor and could endure uh, unforeseen delays while they're doing it, right? Mm. So, very, very difficult. Yeah. Well, the FMC commissioners also took issue with the legitimacy of the related bill signed into law in 2019, which restructured what had been shared oversight of HSC investigation between the Port of Houston Authority and the Pilot Board. The change gave the Pilot Board jurisdiction over large vessel traffic decisions. Um, Their letter also points to U.S. container volumes increasing 23% from November 2019 to November 2020 as a result of the pandemic. Covered it so many times. So basically what's going on right now is there's container ships, ton of traffic, more than they anticipated. Meanwhile, the energy ships are trying to get in. People's cargo is getting delayed, having to pay demerge. So both sides a little bit unhappy. So they're going to take a review out of it. Um, Glad we're talking to Patrick Mahar now, though. He's VP of Business Development over at Gulf Winds International. And he'll shed some insight with us on what has happened over in the Port of Houston, what's going on over in Texas, and all of those kind of things. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. He is a LSU alum, home to Shaquille O'Neal, Jamarcus Russell, wow. maybe not as good as Shaq. And uh, I don't know if you ever watched True Detective, but the guy who wrote and created that show, Nick uh, Pizzolatto, he is also from LSU. Is so some right? good company there. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, both of y'all, and thanks for the plug to uh, to LSU. Go Tigers! Yeah, can you uh, <laughs> can you just tell us for people not familiar, what is Gulf Winds? Gulf Winds is, uh, we're one of the leading uh, asset-based dray providers, uh, drage providers here, uh, based in Houston, celebrating our 25th year this year. We've also got uh, operations up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Mobile, uh, and Memphis. At the Port of Houston, we also have uh, large warehouse facilities, so we transload uh, quite a bit of freight, uh, general commodities at the port right across the street from both Bayport and uh and barber's cut so very large presence in texas large presence obviously in uh in houston and uh just a great segue too on what you just talked about as far as the smca you know getting involved with um you know what's going on here we haven't heard a lot about it in the last uh, year to your point you know they they made that mandate back in 2019 but little known fact it's actually called the the texas chicken mm-hmm. where it's a game of chicken between uh, the the bulk container ships and um, the container the actual container ships themselves because they're going at each other and they actually have to to uh, one of them's got to move and so it's a it's a really tight highway that they're on and obviously for safety reasons they they need to figure that out the the long term solution is that uh, we get dredging right but dredging takes a long time and uh, to your point Tim 
the 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 import surge is definitely happening and so um it's not so much that there's congestion right now but they do need to get ahead of it Texas chickens only in Texas do they play chicken with ta- uh, cargo tankers and, and container ships. That's unbelievable, and and they'll be so. Uh, but Patrick, we had you on um, earlier, right when right when the uh, the ice storm and everything in the in the port was shut down due to that weather that that really really devastating and devastated much of much of Texas and certainly Houston. What's it look like two weeks later? How's the recovery going there? You know, it's actually going really really well. You know, we had we lost that week, and so when I came on uh, on the midday, you know, market update, uh, we didn't have power, and so I actually uh, had to phone in that day. But you know, two weeks later, um, the, the recovery's been been really really good. I mean, we've bounced back, I believe, as an industry, um, much better this time around, um, even than after Harvey. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons, and it's really unprecedented, is the whole region was shut down. And to y'all's point, y'all covered it a lot. You know, two thirds of the country was dealing with it. So transportation in general for that week, you know, it just stopped and vessels stopped and trucks stopped. And uh, we had a lot of power issues um, in Texas. And so DCs didn't operate. Um, And so with that, as it's coming back online, um, you know, everything's just delayed a little bit. And so it's been more of a soft opening back up than anything else. So the vessels are getting work. The Port of Houston does a, a great job of that. But at the same time, I'll tell you, on the other side of the equation, we've got over 75 chemical plants in the Gulf that were shut down during that week due to power outages. And so those chemical plants aren't running at full capacity. They're trying to get back up right now. And that's going to cause some issues and volumes probably for the next you know, two to three months. Yeah, we're looking at these pictures here. It's snow all over on the port of Houston. It's it's incredible looking. It's not an everyday occurrence that you see that. And, you know, we had the oil and gas segment on on this show on Friday, and they were talking about how this is a black swan event, especially for the area. Has this created a big backlog of containers? Do you have ships out at anchor? What's what's going on with port operations? Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's definitely ships that are um, in transit waiting to get in. But largely speaking, um, they're working those, you know, as fast as they can. You're not seeing any type of situation like the pictures that are so famous out on, you know, LA Long Beach right now. It's it's not to that extent. I mean, a lot of things, when a port shuts down, whether it's a hurricane or anything else, you know, where those ships are in transit, they, they start to slow down. The rail network started to slow down. And so with that, it's just kind of a slow ramp back up right now. And uh, the port opened up uh, extended hours. They opened up over the weekend. So they're going to work as many as they can. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you just kind of have to get in line. Yeah. So, Patrick, how is this uh, handling? How is this affecting your business specifically in the in the drayage sector and in, in your warehousing and, and cross dock there? As you know, we talked about bef- uh, you've got uh, the changes and we talked about it here earlier was the, uh, you know, the changes of, of, of re- rerouting those ships to different different ports is one of those options as you have those backlogs on the West getting into other ports. Um, and certainly that's happening there in Houston. So with this uh, effect of the snow and that import or increase in containers that are coming uh, through, as you mentioned before, how's the drayage situation in warehousing cross docking handling? You know, it's busy. It's busy um, all across the network, right? I mean, that's kind of a, a glaring statement of the obvious, but what we're, what we're really fielding right now is um, we're really fielding a lot of calls for people 
that um, are just fed up with the West Coast. And so they're in line out on the West Coast and they're looking at Houston and they're looking at the East Coast. They're looking at Mobile. They're looking at Savannah. Um, and look, they might, already, they might already be in line in those ships out on the West Coast, but that doesn't mean the stuff that they're not loading at origin in China, they're trying to reroute into other places. So it's definitely going to be a story, you know, as we get over this, uh, the weather event, you know, it's definitely going to be a story for the next two to three months that we all need to watch are these port volumes going into these, uh, not just the major markets like Houston and uh, Savannah, but really watch the the Mobiles and the Jacksonvilles and uh, the Tampas and see if, uh, you know, people are trying to get any kind of alternative gateway that they can. You know, we've got people that are asking us right now to uh, to ship back to the East Coast from Houston, to ship to Chicago, to ship to Denver, um, really out of route, right? I mean, that stuff should be coming in the West Coast and hitting a rail market and getting distributed, but um, but they're they're not going to wait in line anymore. Yeah, what do you tell, what do you advise uh, shippers when they say to you, yeah, just bring it into the West Coast, keep bringing it like nothing, like nothing's going on there. Are you letting them know that there's a significant delay if they were to go ahead and do that? Yeah, I mean, look, typically they, they, they know, they know, right? And so they, they, they know more than, uh, than, than we do. Um, what they're wanting is that they're wanting alternatives and uh, they're wanting cost benefit analysis from providers like Gulf Winds and other people to to tell them, look, if I can bring it in through through Houston, you know, what are the inland costs, right? What's the dwell time? Uh, a lot of questions that we get are, are, you know, is, you know, how efficient is it down there? How efficient is it in Houston? And largely it's, it's really efficient. I mean, it's a, I mean, just the, the storm itself um, and the fact that I'm able to say that we're bouncing back, you know, less than 14 days later uh, is really a testament to how efficient, uh, you know, the port is and just the infrastructure that we have here. Well, people are always looking for new for new options, right? If people want to connect with you and get in touch with you and uh, utilize the great port of Houston and maybe play a little Texas chicken, where do uh, where do we send them to? Yeah, for sure. You know, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, also, um, email us pmayor at gwii.com. Of course, hit Golf Wind's website. Uh, we've got a lot of tools on there uh, to connect with different people within our organization. So would love to to really talk to anybody about how we can create value and, um, and and really get freight moving. Thank you so much for joining us at Global Supply Chain Week on What the Truck. We appreciate it. Thank wow. you. Yeah, lots doing down there and lots of things to consider. I mean, as as more and more people start looking to those other ports. Yeah. Right. I mean, specifically, in, I guess Mobile would be the same thing. It's largely container ship or, or you know, like more the bulk. Sure. The bulk, bulk ships starting to change and more of that container come through there. Not only the port's infrastructure, but the infrastructure moving it from the port into the rest of the, the United States, as he mentioned there. Stuff's going out of route, and then the inland costs are different because the rail networks are different and so on and so forth, right? So you don't have that once it's off the ship support to yeah. move it. It's something to consider. Well, you know, visibility, tracking, knowing where your freight is, it's something, yeah. especially in the comments here, we've heard a lot of people complain about, hey, one thing that may be able to help with that blockchain that old that old chestnut right there you go so yeah. we're gonna talk a little blockchain with that uh, juan jose ruez he's head of strategy and business development over at trade lens and he's gonna get us up to up to date on the state of affairs with blockchain on ocean and i think it's high time we uh we get back into these discussions it's been a hot minute since we talked a little blockchain yeah. so juan thank you so much for joining us today <laughs> thank you for having me how are you guys doing we're doing uh we're doing, doing really well one. i got a question for you how'd you get into something like blockchain what interested you 
Wow, that's a very good question. So um, I was working for a for a company in financial services, and I was really interested on how blockchain was being used in that area. And then I was always following the the big uh, technology companies, and um, you know, IBM. Just at that point, I was kind of converting all the research that they had done around uh, investigating blockchain and creating a, a business unit to see how it could be put, bring to bear to solve actual industry problems. So I, I just moved to IBM and, and within IBM we did some explorations on where the technology could be applied and very quickly we identified supply chain. Uh, it's really a, a really good use case for applying this technology. And yeah, we created some partnerships with um, uh, with the ocean shipping lines and we launched this um, solution called Trailens. So uh, Juan, I'm interested, what, what, what was that moment? What, what made you realize that this was, this was a great solution for the issues that are there in SeaTech? In, in yeah, so would you look at, you know, the move of goods across international boundaries, right? So, so you have several challenges there in terms of how the information is being exchanged. Again, coming from IBM, it's all about, you know, how do you leverage information by digitizing it and enabling the exchange, the efficient exchange of that information across all participants. So again, moving a container from origin to destination involves a lot of different companies, individuals, and a lot of information exchanges, right? Uh, so that's an ideal scenario for applying blockchain technologies to make not just the, the exchange of information more efficiently that you could do with traditional IBM cl uh, cloud technologies, but also apply blockchain to ensure that only the right people can access to the right information at the right time, and that that information is secure and it's tamper-proof. Um, so that's when we realized that's an excellent scenario where you have a lot of companies that have their own view of what uh, is happening, but they need to share that view more broadly for the benefit of the ecosystem as a whole. You know, one of the reasons we started focusing on blockchain and wanted to book some more blockchain guests is we were starting to hear some comments that were sort of dismissive towards blockchain. Oh, sure. Like nothing has happened since 2018 when there was a lot of hype surrounding it. But all they got to do is take a trip to your website and they're going to see that blockchain oh, yeah. is most definitely in action and adoption is happening. You have almost 2 billion events tracked on here, 17 million documents published, 37 million containers processed. Talk to me a little bit about blockchain's growth and the adoption. Yeah, and again, it's it's a brand new technology, and, and Trailens is a, it's a startup, right? Again, two main uh, big global companies supporting it, but we used to start uh, a few years ago. So obviously, the, the adoption rate um, it's now scaling faster than ever. We had a 450% increase of commercial usage in the last year, 50% increase in connector terminals, 500% increase in in connecting the inlet depots, and also 200% increase in connecting with 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 customs. Uh, and getting customs information in the platform, right? So that really gives you a sense of, okay, now we are really experiencing that exponential growth, right? It will just take a while to get everybody comfortable with technology and comfortable with what we're doing. Uh, and it's really a, it's a paradigm shift in, in the way that you exchange information. The industry today relies on point-to-point -point communications, calling somebody, emailing somebody, or in, in, in information in information technology parlance EDI protocols. That is also point to point. So trying to do that paradigm shift and get people to use more cloud mindset about, okay, I just upload the data to the cloud and I know only the right parties are gonna get access to it. So that had to do a lot with, with getting the initial adoption and traction uh, with, with this industry. But like I mentioned earlier, right this year, basically the year where, where we are scaling really quickly. And we're a global platform, right? Uh, all the shipping companies are global in nature. So we're operating in all the major countries globally as well. 
So, Juan, is that how the integration takes place? Is it is it through the cloud? Because, you know, we talk about many different things, and the, the visibility is one of them. Where is my container? When is it going to hit? We see yeah. that complaint all the time because there are so many different participate, participants in, in the supply chain when you have, you know, uh, certainly any international. But when you start talking about maritime, you've got so many different uh, participants from door to door, right? Just port to port, there's many. But door to door, there's there's many there. How are all of those people integrated? Is it so? Through the through cloud, yeah, and again, that's the other key aspect when we set out to launch this initiative. We want to make it accessible to everybody, right? So obviously, we spend weeks interconnecting with the systems of records of the big companies, but we want small companies to also be able to benefit from participating in the trainless ecosystem. So you can again integrate through APIs if you are a big company and have an IT department, but we also have developed a very easy-to-use user interface that is available through any web browser, and you can you know upload data, upload your documents, collaborate with your business partners in a very straightforward manner, and that's a, a lot of the investment that we have done, especially in the last 18 months, I would say, is on making it that user interface very easy to use and very easy to consume. And the other aspect where we have uh, developed a lot of resources is on the onboarding process, right? Traditionally, if you want to onboard somebody into your supply chain management platform, again, it can take weeks, right? So with us, it just take days because it's just a web browser. You are probably already a customer of one of the shipping lines. So it's about creating your, your ID and password to access the tailings.com uh, solution and just get cranking. So who is making entries on, like, in practice, in use? What, how are your customers using this blockchain solution? What's actually happening? Yeah, so this blockchain-based container shipping platform is to for the benefit, really, of the BCOs, right? So the ecosystem has all the logistic firms and tracking companies, rail companies, ports, terminals. But we gather all together to really provide that, that visibility to uh, the beneficial cargo owners and what the cargo is and what they are doing. So we have two main capabilities. One is on the events and milestones to answer the question, where are my goods, right? In, in a much more efficient way, a much more granular way with planned, estimated, and actual events. Um, and then the other aspect is the documentation. So there is still a lot of paper that is being used uh, when you move a container. So it's about digitizing all the information at the source. And we digitize it in a way that is not just an image or a PDF file. We actually extract the data from those documents so that the, 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 the data can be and the workflows um, of reviewing information can be automated as well, right? So that, that way minim minimize the, the manual entry errors, uh, it, it makes the process more efficient, and it really allows all those BCOs to automate a lot of the, the, the checking of uh, and passing of information back and forth to, to really be able to, to deliver the goods at the, at the destination at the right time. Wow. Uh, Juan, there's so many different questions that I want to ask you about yeah. this. Um, but I'll, I'll, start with, I'll start with this one. So in the visibility aspect of it, it you're, you've got all these people connected and only certain uh, parties can see the information that they need to see at specific times, right? But So you're talking yeah. about past, current, and then, and then future events that you can see in there. Is there a predictive model within this where you can see is it on time or not on time? Is that, does that come into play through this? Yeah, the other aspect of Trailens, we want to be a neutral, open platform, right? So again, we connect to everybody in the industry, and we are, in a way, just the messaging layer. So we allow that information to flow across all the participants, but we don't, we don't filter or make judgments on what information is the good one or the bad one, right? That's really up to the end user, to the consumer of that information to make that determination. But again, for instance, if there is a, a 
loaded on vessel event, right? That event can come from the ocean shipping line, from the port, from the terminal. Uh, different providers can really send that information. So we don't filter that out. We send all of that, which is, again, which sounds like overwhelming, but through the user interface, you really get access to all that information and you see all the data sources. So you can make your own judgments on, okay, who is really giving me the right most accurate data? But obviously, being IBM, uh, we also have our AI technologies and predictive analytics technologies. So we are building that into the roadmap so that we can also get some, some um, estimated and, and, and predictions on what's going to happen uh, and when the, the things are going to be at the different stages in the journey. Wow. I mean, this is a dense topic, and Michael Vincent said it right there. We could... We could ask you questions all day going through this one. I do wish we had more time. Unfortunately, we do not. But people who are listening, if they do have more questions, they want to connect with you, where should we send them to? Yeah, I think uh, the same as the previous, uh, I guess. So my LinkedIn profile is, is linking to the, your website. So just go in there, reach out. Obviously, I encourage everybody to go to trailend.com. There is a lot of information there. And, um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, answer any, any questions that your audience may have and open to connect with everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Juan. Now we're going to invite the lovely Jenna Bryant. She's co-founder, CEO, general partner at Embedded Ventures onto the show. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. What's happening over there in Chattanooga? What's happening over there? I love the studio you got. Oh, thank you. Uh, Well, I'm in Calabasas, but I call it Calabama because I don't... Y'all know I'm from Birmingham. No, we did not know that. Yeah. And so I call Calabasas, Calabama. And um, my uh, my sign back here, my co-founder, Jordan Noon, actually uh, helped me get this whole setup going. It's made out of recycled aerospace carbon fiber. Oh, wow. Um, there's a company called Elevated Materials who, who does this. So we have a Twitch stream where I learned to build hardware engineering projects. Um, and so, you know, I had to make sure that we could hang. Now, you guys are up to cool stuff all of the time, but for those who are not familiar, what give a little quick overview of what Embedded Ventures does. Yeah, so Jordan Noon is my co-founder here at Embedded Ventures. He's the, he's the founding CTO of Relativity Space, who uh, builds the world's largest metal 3D printers and only 3D printed rockets. So I'm surrounded by people like Jordan who are insanely smart. I'm the non-rocket scientist of the group. Um, but embedded is the skunk works of deep tech venture capital. So I do have to be fairly mum about a lot of our operations, but we invest in early stage deep tech startups through a unique lens. Um, we absolutely believe that diverse teams perform better. Um, we put engineers and scientists in the investment decision seat and we provide critical resources to our portfolio beyond what traditional investment and in, in networking provides today. Awesome, Jenna. Welcome to the show. So what do you look for specifically and what do you consider uh, when you're investing in, in freight tech? Gosh, uh, so many things and some areas that I've been really diving into. Well, for, for quite a, a long time, I've been following GPS infrastructure for a really long time. Um, and then just all of the critical infrastructure systems um, they should not be designed with the standard assumption that GPS data will always be accurate and available. Um, I have lost sleep at night worrying about GPS infrastructure. I don't know about y'all. Um, <laughs> well, y'all hold on, like, before no, we move I'm past that, Jenna, tell us, tell us, what is it, just in case our audience isn't familiar with GPS infrastructure, what is the big issue with GPS yeah. infrastructure that is causing you to lose sleep? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um, well, well, a few things that we've read about recently is how you know ship captains have reported GPS errors that show them 20 to 
120 miles inland when they're actually sailing off the coast of Russia in the Black Sea, or um, there are other well-documented ships that are just disappearing at the drop of a hat from navigation screens while maneuvering in the port of Shanghai. Um, Right now, like drones don't necessarily have to rely on GPS. So um, like if if one drone in a family of a bunch of interconnected airborne surveillance assets encounters weather, situations or, or veers off course, or, um, there are other nodes that can help offer direction and enable aircrafts to, you know, autonomously make the proper adjustments. But, um, you know, in, in the the freight and shipping space, it, you know, it's heavily reliant on GPS. Um, I know that a, an emergency backup GPS was mandated by uh, the 2018 National Timing and Resilience Security Act, I believe. Um, and so legislation basically said that a reliable alternate system needed to be operational within two years, but we are not quite there yet. And it's hmm. been longer than two years. So, so, <laughs> so. are your concerns merely, the, are they, uh, and I don't say merely because I, I agree with you, those are big concerns when you consider those events that are happening and where we're going with automation, et cetera, and what could happen yeah. when you don't have a reliable GPS system. But is it is it the the fragility of the of the system? It's lack of redundancy, or is it fear of nefarious activities? It's a lot of different things. I won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but um, if anyone Google's uh, GPS jamming and spoofing, they'll learn more than they want to know about. Um, and just making sure that there are really solid backups in place. Um, you know, obviously, like. Eloran is one of the potential backup systems tested. It's like a low-frequency, high-power timing navigation system. Um, and then, you know, uh, various timing systems delivered through fiber optic network and satellite systems and, you know, a lower Earth orbit than GPS. Um, are, they're harder to hack um, because they do have a stronger signal. But there are various things that could go on and on. We can have a separate <laughs> conversation about that. Anytime. Um, I think my friends are sick of hearing me talk about GPS infrastructure, but it's about time that people are talking about it. It's not uh, exactly party talk, that, right? <laughs> like, hey, what oh, is oh, You yeah. know, I can't, this GPS infrastructure is keeping me up at night. <laughs> yeah, GPS infrastructure. No, I'm that ding dong who, who actually is. But let's be honest, the only party that parties that I'm attending are like, Zoom Zoom parties. So. Hey, I have a good party question for you. And it's actually, well, it's okay. it's a good question because you wrote it yourself and you asked it to Jordan, your co-founder. And you said, oh, if you okay. had to pick one of your superpowers as a technologist, maybe for you venture capitalists, right, that you okay. hope to utilize the most to help change the world for the better, what would you choose and why? Oh, my gosh. Um, I think that my biggest superpower right now, and I do feel like my superpowers change over time. I feel like right now um, my imposter syndrome has become one of my greatest superpowers. I'm really able to zoom out at any moment and and look and see what I'd want to see done differently um, or, you know, where I think there are gaps in industry. Um, and for, for the longest time, you know, imposter syndrome can be debilitating, especially as a, a woman in tech, uh, a, a woman in VC, I believe. You know, I, I, I've seen fluctuating figures, but I believe only around 8% of people with uh, check writing capabilities in venture capital are female. Um, so the imposter syndrome is real, especially in deep tech. Um, but, you know, the ability to be able to zoom out and see what I really would want to change, it can be so hard when you're in the mix 
um, and, and living everything in real time to to take a moment and, and see what you want to see change in an industry. And so my imposter syndrome right now, for sure, has really allowed me to keep my keep keep my my lens where it needs to be and focus on the issues that I really want to see changed in the industry. So, Jenny, you mentioned the, the low percentage of women who have the check writing ability in, in, in VC yeah. and especially in tech. What advice would you give to uh, uh, women that are looking and interested in, in this space? You know, there are just in general, there are a lot of barriers to entry in venture capital um, and there are a lot of legacy systems in place. Um, I The greatest advice I have is to really utilize each other. You know, I, I tell you know, anyone who uh, is wanting to try something bold um, and needs someone in their corner, I'm like, please reach out to me. I will help you as much as I can. And if I can't, then I'll introduce you to someone who can help you. Um, and it's not just for women. It's it's any uh, anyone who's part of an underrepresented group. Um, and, and it's really just banding together and helping each other out um, and asking for help. I have done that more recently than ever before, um, and it has yielded amazing things. <laughs> One of those examples was by saying, hey, Jordan, uh, I know you're stepping down from Relativity to start another company, but can you uh, join me as my co-founder? Um, and, you know, he's been uh, an insanely awesome co-founder. And then our advisors are unbelievable. And, you know, I've asked for their help. They've given it um, and really just go for it. I, I think more people need to just be making making the choice to do it and figure it out as they go. And we'll all help each other out and, and help change that because we all know <laughs> that diverse teams perform better, period. So it shouldn't even be a question, but we all also all need each other. Oh, is that a cowbell? What yeah, I was going to give you a little for your little <laughs> speech there. I was just waiting for you to stop, oh, but it was so good. I didn't want to I didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, okay, I was wondering if that was like the Oscars music where they're like, OK, you've talked too much. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's a supportive thing. It's a support. It's, it's good thing. to get it's a here, 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 yeah, here. Well, well, I love that. As you were saying it, too, it was reminding me of a conversation we had with another female leader on here. We were talking about trucking, where only 7% of females are drivers, 24% in uh, in the industry total, not even like positions of power, just 24% total. So I think your message will resonate with plenty of women who are in here. We do a little segment on the show called The Wheel of Stupid Questions. So we're going to spin this one for you, and you got to answer whatever it lands on, okay? Oh, no. Can I? All right, round and round it goes. I mean, you've been so good at everything so far, I think you will be good at this one here let's see what we got okay yeah (laughs) pretty good so far you've been pretty damn good at everything what job do you think you'd be absolutely terrible at though especially in supply chain oh in supply chain Mm -hmm. Hmm. what job would i be terrible at oh gosh See, she's so good at everything. She can't um, even think of everything. what she would she be, be good at. at all. No, I'm, I'm like, maybe I would just be, I, I think about things. I'm like, I'd be great. No, not really. Um, <laughs> well, I am not a hands-on engineer. Um, and I learn, you know, I, I learn various hardware engineering projects through, through the technologists around me um, and very basic coding skills. But, you know, I think of all of these, you know, I guess if I, if someone were to say, Hey, can you sit down and, and, um, code this for us or engineer this for us, I would go, Oh, I'm going to need some backup. <laughs> <laughs> Got you know. Yeah. It makes sense. Same, yeah. same here. I'm glad we have a data science team here over at. Yeah. No one's team. asking me to code the blockchain. Yeah. I actually right. went, I went to a blockchain summit at IBM. We spoke to IBM a little bit earlier cool. and um, it was very designed for IBM engineers. It was just like a big white book with all 
white text and no pictures or anything. I was complete. I was completely lost at this particular <laughs> meeting. So I well, empathize I, with I, you on my Twitch. I feel like a great thing is that it normalizes trying something new at any time. Um, and seeing most people don't realize it, you know, and Jordan has talked to me about this a lot, how you're not prepared for what your day to day is going to be as an engineer in the workforce. And so on our Twitch stream, even going through these little circuits and things and, and you know, the, the insanely smart founders who are, you know, CTOs talking me through this, they have to Google something. They'll go, mm. Oh, wait, we did that wrong. Let's Google it. And I'm going, Oh my gosh, this feels so normal. And I don't feel like a total, you know, ding dong next to them, but let's talk about y'all swag. Look at that. Look at that swag y'all have. I need those mugs and I need, you had a hat up there earlier. Oh yeah. I sure oh, do. Right, right here. Swag.freightways.com to get one of those. But if you uh, DM me or email me your address, I'll, I'll put one of the posts for you. Thank you. I love <laughs> that. We've been looking at, cause you know, we're a new firm. We've been looking at swag and I'm like, well, first of all, I need that desk. I need I need to really step it up. I Ooh. do have a motor desk, but it We it, don't sell the desk in the gift shop. No, the desk is oh, not. Yeah. The <laughs> One of a kind. I know where they do oh, sell no. them, though. I do know where they sell them. Well, Jenna, we really appreciate having you on the show today. If people want to reach out, they want to learn more from you, they want to get your swag, your swag in terms of investments, where should we send them to? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, feel free to send them to my LinkedIn. It's uh, just under Jenna Bryant. Or feel free to email me, jb at embedded.ventures. Great. Thank you very much. I'll get your address from you, too, and I'll get one of these okay. in the mail out your way. Oh, yeah. Thank Thanks, you y'all. <laughs> Take it easy. Bye. Oh. Yeah, she said y'all, too. She really is from Alabama. Yeah, I don't think yeah. she was lying. I didn't get the... I think she went to Auburn. <laughs> She did go to Auburn. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Well, yep. everybody, let's take a trip inside the newsletter. You can oh, subscribe to the What the Truck one. newsletter by going to FreightWaves.com slash WTT. Yeah. I like the modem. Bring in the bumpers. Where I are. love the modem. Of you course, old mail. style. Right? That's how Daniel Stanton still You've connects to the mail. internet. He still has an AOL account. <laughs> you ever email that guy? No, I'm just kidding, Daniel. You're a good guy. Spot rates, man. So we covered this in the newsletter. First, the first thing we covered in there was spot rates, 332 inclusive fuel, dry van spot rates. It's the highest it's been in the series of our index within Sonar. What do you make of it? What do you make of the market? The market uh, is, I mean, it's, it's reacting to the storms in Texas. Yeah. It's reacting to the, obviously, the strain at the ports that, that is happening right now. Uh, and we're in, it, it's in severe flocks is yeah. what's going on. It's trying to recover from, from many different things. And with the lack of drivers, the lack of drivers coming in, any little thing, any little ripple, it's, it's like super saturated air. You throw that little bit of energy out there and boom, you've got this storm. And that's kind of what's happening out there. But we're not throwing little pebbles. We're throwing an ice storm that shuts down Texas. How imbalanced, you know? how imbalanced is, this, uh, is this freight mix right now, though, in, in, terms, of where, in terms of where it's moving across the country? Uh, well, it's it, it's well, it's it's starting to to, to normalize. It's starting yeah. to balance. It's starting to balance out, and it will ba- it will balance out and normalize. It's it's the really the lack of 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 the drivers and capacity there and the visibility that happens when it does go into flux, like it did with Texas, because you got stuff stuck in one place, sure, or between the north and south of that storm as well, right before major holidays screws things up. Well, one thing Zach Strickland mentioned in his chart of the week to be mindful of, too, is the impact, the psychological impact that the pandemic has had on, yes. on carriers and brokers, and that these prices may stay artily, artificially inflated longer by pricing managers than they normally would as they don't want to take that downside risk immediately, which means you shippers, be careful. You're paying a lot bringing ocean freight over here, then you're paying a ton in inland freight, too. So just... 
be very mindful of all, and not to mention this, the struggles with drayage right now with poor congestion and all of those kind of things. Here is an interesting story. So this is one. We covered this news story uh, on our last What the Truck, right? This is also a newsletter. Got more information on it. And it was about that motorcycle accident with the Jarheads Motorcycle Club where they were run over by that driver. Seven of them killed by this driver um, in Randolph, New Hampshire. It happened in, in June of 2019. This guy had a litany of issues, this, this driver. He'd been pulled over. Um, he was pulled over just weeks earlier in Connecticut in an incident that was never transmitted to the RMV of Massachusetts. But even right. if it had been, there's just so much infuriating stuff in the story. Even if it had been, it wouldn't have mattered because they hadn't updated. The Massachusetts RMV hadn't updated their system with any violations since 2008 until this happened. And the lady in charge of it had to finally resign. I mean, it's just incredible. And now Keep Trucking is getting getting kind of rolled into this one, uh, maybe unfairly. What happened is this carrier, this Westfield Transport that's now defunct, they were using Keep Trucking AOBRDs, and they were— they were operating illegally by changing driver logs, as you That's could exactly in the right. BRD. Yeah, NTSB steps in and they say, "Well, you shouldn't be doing that. These regulations should be in place, and you should have known better." But here's the thing about it: the regulations weren't in place. There was a failure at government level here. Where, first of all, you're allowed to self-certify your ELD. Anybody can just yeah, yeah. It works fine. It's on yeah. the honor system. AOBRDs weren't held by the same regulations as ELDs were, right? right? So, I mean, key trucking is just in kind of a bad circumstance. It has nothing necessarily to do with their technology, but it does highlight some of the real problems in regulation here. Yeah, that's exactly what it does is the understanding of the investigators there. It highlights that uh, their understanding was a, a, absolutely erroneous because they're applying legis or regulations to the ELD that were for the AOBRD, right? like you said. And it's a confusing mess. And unfortunately, Keep on Trucking's got to try and clear their name when they doesn't appear they did anything wrong. And we're not involved in this crash whatsoever. No. This guy was driving for two days with illegal logs. This guy was driving for, for, for this company for two days with the yeah. illegal logs, right? So yeah. he didn't pick the, the keep trucking or any of that kind of no. stuff. But no. this guy rolled a truck in Texas yep. uh, just a few months earlier. He That's failed right. a failed sobriety test and got arrested just a few weeks earlier. That's right. A year earlier, he was arrested in a Denny's and found with a crack pipe. Yeah. And yeah, you could actually watch the body citizen. cam footage. And it's in the news. I mean, it's just incredible to me. Like, what yeah. a failure of the system at, at so many points. And I, it's a little bit unfair to say this was all... Keep trucking's fault. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to say it was any part of their fault at no. all, right? I mean, is what it seems to me. Anyway, no, yeah. but I do think we should maybe look at if this is really about safety. You got to look at how we're certifying ELDs, what they're doing up in Canada, their certification process may yeah. shine a light on some of these things. It'll be interesting to see which American manufacturers submit theirs for their two, or maybe the white label and put them on their another name. I guess it just depends on how stringent that certification uh process is yeah yeah the the certificate self-certification i don't understand why you'd be able to self-certify anyways yeah i mean you've got to be able to uh, i mean if you're doing these logs and the the thing is the and the goal is actually safety which we've seen many things under the guise of safety that weren't really for safety but if it's there for really for safety and that visibility uh and preventing these type of horrendous accidents from happening then we have to have stronger regulations and stronger certification. And I don't think self-certification is one of the answers. Well, they couldn't get that criminal off the street, that driver, but at least they got these two criminals off the street, Stephen Rochelle (laughs) Jr. and Amanda Morgan. Check them out right there. They were selling... 
Pokemon cards, right? They were they had an illegal Pokemon. They had a legal Pokemon ring going on oh, where they were these selling uh, fraudulent po- Pokemon cards online. <laughs> Look at these two. They are definitely a danger to the public at large. Now, if you were going to cast <laughs> a, a couple of criminals to be in charge of a Pokemon theft ring, I, they're like dead ringers. Oh yeah, they are. They they are. I mean, the sketch artist wouldn't even have to ask you any questions. No, so, someone it's on Reddit said that uh, Stephen Rochelle there. He looks like a um, a failed child actor. Like he just couldn't make it. <laughs> he couldn't make it to the next stage after his uh, Disney show. Like the, he looks like that actor that's not Anthony Michael Hall. So <laughs> what were they doing? They were they were they they're selling these Pokemon cards online and doing a bait and switch method where they were they were saying it was a higher priced list item, uh, maybe like a, an original issue card, and then selling a newer one. Crazy stuff, man. The trading card market's insane. Did you see the cost of that Michael the Michael Jordan Flair rookie card? This came up because yeah, you missed yesterday's keynote. That? Gary V did the keynote and he's talking to Steve Ferrer and. Um, you know, when people have a hobby they're really into, they yeah, tend to, yeah, like yeah. I do it some of my they tend to integrate it into your work and your conversations. So he's talking about this Michael Jordan Flair rookie. He called it the modern Mona Lisa. Yeah. This thing sold for, I think it was like $30,000 in January of 2019, just sold for $700,000, which Gary Vee said was undervalued in this market. Undervalued in this undervalued. market. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, like 90000 or something like that. Yeah, the Mona Lisa of trading cards is unbelievable. The Mona Lisa <laughs> trading cards. Hey, guys, if you like this show, look up What the Truck on your favorite podcast player of choice. Click subscribe or watch us live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at noon Eastern time. We'd love to have you. She talked about the swag. You want to exit through the gift shop? little Banksy reference for you Banksy fans out there. Swag.freightwaves.com. This work of art will be on your head, and you'll look beautiful. You'll be the modern Mona Lisa with one of those on your head. Oh, yeah. Did Mona Lisa ever wear a hat? I never met her. Huh. I have. I've been there. I've seen it. I've been allured. When you go there, though, it's, it's, it's not very impressive. It's oh, yeah. not that no, big of a painting. No, it's not. It's not that big of a painting. Hey, follow me on Twitter, at Timothy Duda. That's D-O-O-N-E-R. You can find him at Vincent Dudu. Connect with us on LinkedIn. We'll be... Uh, your conference connections. Stick with us. We got one more session. We got many more sessions coming up. We still yeah. got a grand prize coming up, is what I meant to say. A little cabo for all of you. Stick around. Coming up next on off near shore, shoring up the supply chain. Peace and love.